You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Three things. Firstly, I agree with Kat Stark, author of Yelling and Pasties, who just as I was about to sit down and record the top of this week's show, tweeted out, completely unable to even today. I feel you, Kat. I am finding it hard to even today myself, but the show has to have an opening. The show must go on or go live or go up or something. So I must. Secondly, can we call them deplorables now? I think we can. The worst president has empowered the worst people. The racists, the anti-Semites, the Islamophobes, the homophobes, the transphobes, the anti-immigrant hysterical racists. Last week it was pipe bombs being mailed to leading Democrats and critics of the president by, as it turned out, to no one's shock, a supporter of the president. And this weekend it was an anti-Semitic hate crime committed by someone who was literally repeating word for word the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories he heard on Fox News and read on Trump's Twitter feed. Trump and his enablers in the GOP and the media have both poured out poisons and drawn out poisons. In some days, it feels like only a miracle can save us. Can a midterm election be a miracle? Only one way to find out. Vote. And thirdly, I know what this show is. I know what this show is for. Really, I do. This isn't Slate's political gab fest. I'm a dedicated listener. Love me some Emily, David, and John. And it's not Pod Save America or 538 or The Weeds. This is my little sex and relationship podcast. People come here. People download and listen. People call in because they need a break from the news. Because they want a break from politics. People come for the smut, the titillation, the there but for the grace of God blow eye schadenfreude that kicks in when you listen to other people talk about their messy sex lives and their relationship problems. It makes us feel a little better about our own messy sex lives and our own relationship problems. Helps put them in perspective, makes us feel not so alone in our screw-ups and maybe not so screwed up about the way we like to screw. I know that, but nine times out of ten, particularly over the last... Two years, I open the show with a rant, sometimes more in anger, sometimes more in sadness, about our national calamity or our international calamity. Looking at you, Poland, Hungary, Austria, and Brazil, right-wing populists, nationalists, racists, demagogues, phobes of all stripes are on the march seemingly everywhere. We have to fight back because we can't let the haters and nationalists and neo-fascists and phobes of all stripes and anti-Semites win. But we can't stay in that fight if we aren't allowed to think about anything else ever. Art and music and porn and poetry and sex and titillation and other people's problems. These distractions are necessary. They are morale shorer uppers. They are sanity enhancers. They are political immune system boosters. So welcome to your weekly distraction. I am proud to be one of your weekly distractions. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you enjoy the break. And then I hope you get out there and fight. And I'm going to make you a quick promise. This show goes up Tuesday mornings. On Tuesday, November 8th, 2016, I was so sure, as so many were, that Hillary was going to win the election. And that came across. I think I said as much at the top of the show. I was really optimistic on Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. 
so optimistic that people who listen to the show later in the week, after we found out that Hillary wasn't going to win the election, were devastated. So I'm going to make you a promise. I am going to open next week's show, which goes out Tuesday, November 6, 2018, the date of our midterm elections, with a non-political, purely sexual topic to be determined later. So that if you listen to the show on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, you don't have to worry about what I might have said or how optimistic I might have been on one condition. On one condition will I open next week's show with a purely sexual, non-political topic. All of y'all are going to vote on or before November 6th, next Tuesday, for Democrats. Oh, and happy Halloween, motherfuckers. Get out there. Be as sexy as you want to be. All right, coming up on this week's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your distracting, titillating cues and lots of my, I hope, passable A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Stephen King, our urologist pale, returns, and we have a harrowing conversation about a small child's foreskin and the dispute that has led to between that small child's parents. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I actually just discovered your podcast today for the first time, and I uh, love it. I am in a relationship with a man I love. I've never been more serious with another person before. We've been together almost three years now, and we've always had a great sex life. You know, monogamous, where we have sex often, and it's always really pleasing. Uh, But lately, over the past six months or so, I've been noticing his libido's kind of dropped and Mine has not, and I am just, like, dying to have more sex. And whenever we talk about it, he mentions, you know, that he's a little tired, and he, I just, oh, you know, i just too tired to please you, things like that. And then I recently found out that he actually masturbates and watches porn every morning before work. And I caught him doing it, but he doesn't know that I saw what I saw. And I've... Um, actually seen it repeat like every day before work for a couple weeks now. So I'm just wondering how to handle this because I'm totally not against porn, but if he's giving more attention to porn than me and I'm not getting pleased, then I am not okay with it. Um, You know, I'm just not being fulfilled. I think you know what you know, and you should confront him with what you know which is you're not really having much sex with each other anymore. He says he's too tired for sex or disinterested in sex right now, and yet he is cranking one out every morning. Now, you didn't exactly do the kind of snooping that I am required to offer a pro forma condemnation of every time it arises. You didn't hack into his email account. You didn't hold his thumb up to his phone when he was sleeping and access his messages or photos or videos that he downloaded onto his phone for safe creeping. No, you share a living space with him. And you've noticed that every morning in your shared living space, he darts off to crank one out before he goes to work. You are not an idiot. You are a sentient being. You are not a potted plant in the corner. You are not an armchair or an end table. You have eyes and ears and senses. So go to him and say, look, what is up? You say you're too tired for sex right now, not too tired for masturbation. I know that masturbation requires less effort less thought and you don't have to factor in another person's pleasure and the work and effort that that sometimes requires to get that other person off. So masturbation is something that partnered people do and have a right to do. But neglect is the issue here. And the masturbation, the time with porn, 
your time alone with porn is now salt in a wound. It's not your own private time and you have the right. Right now it is compounding my feelings of rejection and hurt. So dude, what is up? Do you want out? Are you bored? Do we need to shake things up? Are you done? Are you biding your time until our lease expires? What is it? I need you to be honest with me so as not to shred my ego, so as not to leave me so devastated by the constant rejection that I'm now feeling that if our relationship ends, I'm going to be too damaged. I'm going to carry that hurt and damage forward into my next relationship. So what is it? What's going on? Time to level with me. Hi, I am a 25-year-old cisgendered female, and I've been in a long-term relationship for four years. Um, we met in college, and we're still together. And my question is, I don't know, it, I wish it was simpler, but when do you know to stop? Like, when do you know to throw in the towel if you're kind of bored or over it? or whatever, but you don't want to just absolutely obliterate the other person's heart. I I don't know. How do you know that you're not just being ungrateful or looking at new shiny things? If you can answer this, then like you should be a super rich man. <laughs> there are times in life when radical honesty and directness is too risky. For instance, let's say that it was 10 years in the future and you and your then boyfriend, now husband, have two kids and you're financially dependent on him and you're bored and looking at new and shiny things and wondering whether you should get out. But you have to take into consideration the safety and security and emotional well-being of your children. You have to factor in your perhaps financial dependence on your husband or his on you if you were the go-to-work parent and he was the stay-at-home parent. And it would be a lot harder to be really honest at that moment about how you're feeling because saying that shit out loud, you can't unsay it. And the consequences for you or him financially for your children could be dire. If you were radically honest right now at this stage in your life though, mid early twenties out of college, college boyfriend, no kids, not married yet. Got a lease. You can be really fucking honest at this moment. You can push your chips into the middle of the table and open your mouth and say some shit that can't be unsaid. Not in a cruel way, just in a blunt and direct and honest way. We've been together four years. I don't know how you're feeling, but right now, every shiny object that crosses through my line of sight catches my eye. Right now, I am so bored. Right now, it feels like we're not earning each other. And I feel very much like I'm taking you for granted and I feel perhaps you're taking me for granted. So what's the deal? Where are you at emotionally? How are you feeling about this relationship? Not a lot of people in adulthood are with the folks that they dated in college. Fewer still are with the folks they dated in high school. So the odds that you two are going to be together forever, and I think you should say this to him, are long. But you do love him still. And you're not ready to pull the plug. What you're ready for, what you're willing to do, is be radically honest with him. That if things continue on as they are now, this trajectory, this downward slope that you guys are on, it's going to end. And better it ends sooner rather than later if it's just going to peter out so that we end as friends and we don't engineer some conflict that gives us an excuse to break up with each other so that I don't cheat or you don't cheat or we don't become scaldingly contemptuous of each other and drive each other away because we couldn't at this moment, love each other through the breakup. 
that may be inevitable and is inevitable if, again, things continue on the trajectory they're on now. So, honey, darling, person I am not yet married to, person I have not yet scrambled my DNA together with like a couple eggs in a pan, how you feeling? What do you want to do? This is where I'm at. Where are you at? Okay, I'm pretty much done with you, caller, but quickly, a, a footnote, a digression about boredom and long-term relationships. Boredom is not always fatal in a long-term relationship. It's kind of a thing that happens in a truly long, long, long-ass-term relationship, a multi-decade relationship. You will hit a plateau, boredom will set in, and then you will emerge from that plateau. And that boredom, you'll look back on it, it was kind of a stage, kind of a phase. The trick is to acknowledge it. The trick is not to stew, not to allow resentment to grow inside you like a cancer. The trick is for both people to say to each other, things are stressful right now, it's kids or it's work or it's whatever, and we're taking each other for granted, we're not really investing in the relationship uh, like we had been, but we will again. We will come through this, we will power through this, and it requires some intentionality, it requires some scheduled sex, it requires some carving out of time to go and do the things that you enjoyed doing together when you first met. It requires a desire to stay in the relationship, which means solving and moving past the boredom. Now, you can't always solve it on your preferred timetable. If it is kid stress or work stress, you may have to live on that plateau, in that plateau, in, I'm not sure which, but there with that plateau, you may be there for a little bit. But if you've looked each other in the eye and said, this will end, infancy will end and we will have more time. I'm getting a new job and we will have more time. I'm almost finished with my PhD and we will have more time. And we will do what we need to do to bring the excitement back into our relationship. Hey, Dan, long-time listener, first-time caller, calling on behalf of a friend whose boyfriend got drunk and peed in the corner of her bedroom in the middle of the night. He has no recollection of this happening, and she is rightfully upset. How common is this? Why does this happen? And how should she handle the conversation with him? Nancy suggests crate training. That might turn him on, though, and then he will keep peeing in the corner so he can get back in that crate. Uh, this happens. Sometimes people get drunk and they do this. And I think your friend should count her lucky stars because I have a girlfriend whose boyfriend got hammered one night uncharacteristically. So doesn't have a drinking problem. Hey, he's a listener. Nice. Sorry. I hope you don't mind. I'm chatting about you right now. Uh, who got up in the middle of the night, went into the corner of the room, sat on a garbage can and took a great big shit in the corner of their room, a shit that could not be contained in the wire basket. That was their garbage can by their computer printer. Hey, hope you guys know what I'm talking about this on my show. Shout out to my friends. They got through it by acknowledging that this isn't a thing that he does every day. This is a thing that he did that one time when he was drunk and hasn't done it other times when he has been drunk. So it's not anything that you should attach too much importance to. It's not anything you should worry about over much. It's the sort of thing that you just kind of have to let go, just like he did in the corner that night when he was drunk. Hi, Dan. I was talking to this guy on a dating app, and we talked for over a week. Um, I haven't met this guy yet, but I was really into him. I was. We have a ton in common, and the greatest thing is that we have like a lot of kinks in common, which is hard to find. And we even like talked on video chat and stuff. And I was super stoked to meet this guy. And then the night before we were going to meet, he tells me he can't see me because he actually has a long-term girlfriend. And he apologized and basically told me, like, he was looking 
you know, to step out of his relationship because he wasn't getting his needs met or whatever, but he just couldn't go through with it, and he really wanted to work things out with his girlfriend, which, great, good for him. I'm glad he did that. I'm glad he told me before we fucked, but obviously I was really hurt. I felt really, you know, I was let on, and I was like, okay, great. So we we talked about his relationship and stuff, and, like, he still wanted to be friends. So we've kind of, like, texted a little bit, but I've kind of kept it at arm's length because I don't really want to be involved. Um, So he texted me today and basically told me that he talked to his significant other about all the things that he's into and what her boundaries and limits are. And because he's into all these kinky things that she's not into, she said, okay, like, I will give you a hall pass. You can go meet this other woman and do all this stuff. It's a one-time deal. So he's asking, you know, if I would want to do that still. And I'm really torn because I... Like I said, I was really into this guy. We have a lot of kinks in common. I was really excited to meet him. But I feel like this is just, I don't know, some kind of can of worms that maybe I shouldn't get involved in. That Like, I don't know what kind of relationship they have. I don't know, you know, if they have jealousy issues. Uh, Yeah, I just don't know if I should get involved. And what should I say to him? I don't know whether they have jealousy issues, but they certainly have idiocy issues and don't understand kink and how kink works and what kink's about issues. As I wrote in Savage Love a couple of years back, a lot of people, kinky and not, believe that kinky desires don't work the same way vanilla desires do, i.e. unlike normal sexual desires, fucking, sucking, rimming, kinky desires, pissing, spanking, binding, only have to be acted on once. Do it once, get that kink out of your system and enjoy vanilla sex and only vanilla sex for the rest of your life. But kinks don't work that way. I'm going to keep reading because I think this is pretty smart. In the same way that normal people don't want to fuck just once in their lives and get it out of their system, a kinky person isn't going to want to do those kinks just once and get it out of their system. So the odds that this guy can, just this once, with this hall pass, run off with you, do these things, and then his relationship is going to be saved and secure and successfully and completely monogamous for the next five, six, seven decades are nil. That is not the way it works. You could say that to him. You could direct him to this column that I wrote called Gymnastics, July 1st, 2015. He might need to read it. (laughs) Or you can have him listen to the show and I can read it to him. But yeah, trust your gut. Don't get mixed up in this. Now, I don't want to be too hard on this guy. You sound young. I'm assuming they're young. A lot of people are ashamed of their kinky desires and work like hell to, to to suppress them and not to prioritize them in a relationship. Like many people, a lot of kinky people fail to prioritize sexual compatibility and they wind up partnered with someone who isn't into anything that they're into and they reach a point where they realize they can no longer deny these, these interests. Sex is in charge. Sex is more powerful than we are. And then they tiptoe into apps. They begin interacting with people to get their yayas on so they can fantasize about it. And they reach a point where they really want to do it. And a lot of kinky people in vanilla relationships cheat their way out of those relationships to do their kink thing. They explode their relationships and they're dishonest and they go behind their partner's backs. To his credit, that's not what he did. 
to his discredit, he still doesn't understand the role kink plays in his life and that these desires are going to play in his life and that they can't be denied or just acted on that one time. He'll realize that pretty quick after he acts on it that one time with you, if you're stupid enough to be his one-off, or with someone else. Then he'll be back on the apps, chatting with people who share his kinks, who would probably make better partners for him. So you need to tell him you don't want to be his piece on the side. You need to tell him that you don't want to be his one-off, that you want a relationship with someone who shares your kinks. And he can't be that person, at least right now, at least while he is still wasting his time in a relationship with someone with whom he is not sexually compatible. Let him know that if he's single or if he has a more reasonable, workable accommodation that isn't going to lead to lies and cheating down the road that he might want to involve you in, that he should give you a call then. Hey, Dan. So I did meet my boyfriend and fiance now ex over three years ago, and we did meet through a kink we both shared. Before we started dating, he has been an addict, and he didn't reveal to me his addiction to many things until we were probably here in our relationship. Just recently, it got to the point where his addiction took over his life and took over my happiness, and it involved lying, stealing, and just I've seen the worst side of him in my life, and I finally decided to end it in sort of a mutual way. We're still living together, which is hard because of our lease. But my question is, it was just revealed yesterday that he has thyroid cancer. And this is just when I finally realized I'm over this relationship and I'm so happy without him and I'm ready to move on and everything planned out. But now how do I decide what to do when cancer is involved because no one's prepared for this? Do I stay to support him or do I leave and take everything and let him fend for himself? It's just, I need advice about this because there's no answer of what I should do and I'm torn in a million ways. He told you that he has cancer. Cancer's back. That's sad. If it's true. He's lied to you in the past. Possible he's lying to you now. I hope he wouldn't stoop to that, but I don't know the degree or scale of the lies he told you before, the lies and deceptions and theft that prompted you to end this relationship. If they were little stupid lies that added up to a breakup, okay, maybe He's less likely to lie about something like this. If they were great, big, giant lies, then maybe this is just another great, big, giant lie in the series of great, big, giant lies. Collect them all. If indeed he does have cancer, that's very sad. It's sad that he's sick. It's sad that he has addiction issues. And you should offer him whatever support you feel comfortable offering him. But you're not obligated to be boyfriends again or to marry him or to be his caretaker. Hopefully, there are other people in his life who can step up. Hopefully, his addiction issues haven't destroyed every relationship. And he has family and he has parents and he has friends. And they can be there to support him. And indeed, his family has a moral obligation to support him in a way that you do not have a moral obligation to support him anymore. You are not in a relationship. You're not exactly strangers to each other, but you are not his partner. There was a time that you liked him. There was a time that you loved him. There was a time when you were fiancés. There's some good in him that you recognized and were able to tap into early in your relationship before the addiction issues and the lies and the thieving destroyed your affection for him. And in honor of who he was or the good that's in him somewhere, I think you should offer him some support. 
what support you can, but you're not morally obligated to put your life on hold, to take him back, or even to be his primary caregiver or the entirety of his support system. He's sick. He's an adult. He needs to take care of himself, which means pulling in the support he can from people in his life, not just the ex with whom he's still sharing an apartment. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s female. About eight years ago, I was raped by my then partner, who I met through the BDSM scene. I had a firm limit that I wouldn't have vaginal sex without a condom. He didn't like condoms, so he never did it. One morning, after a long night and early morning of kinky beatings, which left me incoherent and without the ability to speak, he raped me. He put his penis in my vagina without a condom while I was unable to consent. This caused me to have panic attacks for weeks. He stuck with me throughout them, but he never apologized. And I was so smitten with him that I couldn't think of it as rape. It took me seven years to realize that what he did was rape and a few more months to make a post on it on FetLife about it. I wanted to remain friends with him because aside from that incident, he and I got along great. My desire to help other people be brave eventually overwhelmed that, and I wrote a long post, Santa's name, about what happened. An ex of his recently messaged me and said that he's going around saying that I'm fake and that my post was politically motivated. He's very conservative. He voted for Trump. He owns guns. He said that he wants to stop the left with bullets, all that. And I'm rather liberal. I don't agree with his belief, but I never hated him for them. Back when I knew him, he was far less wacky, gun-toting, shoot-em-up conservatard and more run-of-the-mill Republican. The statute of limitations in my state is 12 years. I don't think I don't think I remember enough of what happened to report it, and I don't want to ruin his life despite what he might think. Do I have a responsibility to report him? What should I do? Let's start with the math, not the statute of limitations math. The how old were you exactly when all this happened math? You say you're mid-20s. And you say this was eight years ago. So if you're 25, smack dab in the mid-20s, this happened when you were 17. If you were 26, 27, this happened when you were 18 or 19 years old. Call me conservative. Call me a kink shamer. But I generally don't believe that adult men should be beating up teenage girls to the point where they are incoherent and incapable of offering meaningful consent or advocating for themselves in the moment and withdrawing their consent or deploying their safe word. So this guy sounds like shitty on so many levels and not just the went from your run of the mill conservative Republican male who I hear are overrepresented on that life to gun toting Trump backing wants to shoot liberals monster. The monster was always there. What he did to you was, kind of monstrous. He reduced you to a condition where he could have the sex with you that he wished to have, knowing that that wasn't the sex that you wanted to have with him, nor was it sex that you consented to. And so indeed he did rape you and you could go to the authorities and maybe you should. And some will argue you should, despite the fact that there most likely won't be an investigation. And if there is an investigation, there will not be an indictment. And if there is an indictment, which there won't be, there won't be a conviction because of the circumstances here which are black and white to you, black and white to me, and you're retelling, but to a jury or a prosecutor, this is going to exist very much in a gray area that is reasonable doubt adjacent. That said, that depressing shit said, online kink communities like FetLife, like Recon, they exist not just to bring people together so they can get their kink on, they exist to create accountability. They exist so there is feedback. 
They exist so that you meet somebody on FetLife, you meet somebody on Recon, you're interested in perhaps playing, you can see who their friends are. You can reach out to people that they've played with and get a reference. You can vet them. That's what these spaces exist to provide. That's what these spaces provide that kinksters didn't used to have. Kinksters used to kind of fly blind into circumstances where they were very vulnerable and at risk potentially of being taken advantage of by a monster. And this guy kind of sounds like a fucking monster. So I think you should put this out there. I think you should tell the truth about what happened to contribute to the accountability that these sites like FetLife and Recon exist to create and facilitate because he needs to be, if not held legally accountable, because that's not going to happen. He needs to be held socially accountable on this social media platform where kinksters gather to meet, but not just meet, but also vet. And finally, I hope you're processing this not just with your friendly neighborhood potty mouth sex advice podcaster, but also with a good sex positive kink positive therapist who can help you work through this. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 22 year old bisexual female calling with a relationship question. I am dating a 40-year-old sugar daddy. I identify as a sugar baby. I started dating him about six months ago. We're very in love. Um, I very much care for him, and I see us having a future together. Except there's many layered issues that I'm calling out today. First of all, there's obviously the financial power dynamic that we have between us. And in addition to that, there's a large age difference. And because of this age gap, we're in very different places in our life. He is currently legally separated from his wife and getting a divorce and he also has a four-year-old daughter he's a very good father and he spends a lot of time with his daughter for example they recently went to see frozen on ice i want to be more involved in his family life and i want to feel less like a secret and more like a person that's involved in his life he has made it clear that he wants a future with me and we even transitioned away from a lot of the sugar relationship to more of just a vanilla relationship with an allowance component, although I have other sugar daddies, and it's a completely different feel for me with this guy. The problem is um, I feel like there's just some dissonance in that he's at a he's a very private person. He's at a place in his life where he's not really able to move forward for me. So I kind of told myself I just need to be patient and wait until he's at a place. Um, but, for example, like I've never been to his house and I haven't met his daughter, although um, because research says it's better to wait until a couple is divorced to meet a new partner. I would prefer to wait until his divorce is final. Um, but things like this start to get to me sometimes and I get really upset and communicate to him that, it's disappointing. And over time, um, he keeps telling me that he's afraid to disappoint me and that he really wants to be with me, but he thinks it's selfish to be with me because he can't give me everything that he wants to give me. So I'm not exactly sure what to do. I'm not sure if I should just kind of cut my losses and move on. Um, but I'm having a really hard time thinking about it logically just because of all the feelings that are kind of getting in the way. I think I know what you would tell me, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, this is someone that everything else just feels perfect. Like we are very compatible sexually, romantically, emotionally. 
um, we're very compatible when it comes to monogamy and our perspectives on it. And it's not a relationship that I want to just let go lightly. I were the parent of a small child and I was dating someone new. My relationship was ending. My marriage ending. I was getting divorced. And that person that I was dating, even if it was a sugar baby, was pressing me at six months to meet my child and guilt tripping me about having not yet met my child or been to my home where my child is. I would break up with that person because what they're telling me is that they don't have the emotional intelligence that I would want to look for in a partner, however I might have met them. I don't want to be too hard on you. And you even acknowledge toward the end that it's better for the kids to meet the new partner after the parents are divorced. It's also better for the kids to meet the new partner after you're sure, the parent is sure, that this new person is someone that they want to be with long term. And you can't know that at six months. You can hope that at six months. You can continue to see this person under the assumption that that's what you're building toward and working toward because really dating at six months, you don't know each other yet. He doesn't know you yet. You don't really know him that well yet. However infatuated you might be, you are still in the NRE and check cashing, in this case, phase of the relationship. And that is not the time to make a proposal. That is not the time to rush a commitment. And bringing you into the life of his child is rushing the commitment. And if you're pressing this issue... And it sounds like you are, even though on some level you know that it's too soon. He may be pulling away from you, pulling back to protect himself, protect his child. And I have to say, I can't give you everything you want, everything you deserve is really just a variation on it's not you, it's me. So you're contemplating pulling the plug. I believe because of that statement, he may be contemplating pulling the plug as well. So... Here's my advice. It's an advice show. You called in for my advice. Here you go. Back the fuck off. Slow the fuck down. Cool your jets. Slow your roll. Tell him that you love him and you think maybe you guys could have a future together. And if he feels the same way, you'd like to keep dating in a non-professional capacity. No more sugar baby, sugar daddy relationship. And then a year from now, after you've been together a year and a half, if you're becoming more serious about each other, then you can start thinking about the kind of commitment, the kind of relationship that you want to have. And that would include a relationship at that point with his child. At this point, at six months, in the context of a commodified relationship with that power imbalance that you acknowledge, it's too soon, too soon for you to be involved in the life of this child. He knows it. And to your credit, you know it too. You need to trust your gut here. It is too soon. The part of your brain that's saying, I want to meet this kid, needs to hear from the part of your brain that's telling you, that told me, that you know it's too soon. And again, you need to slow your roll, cool your jets, calm the fuck down, back the fuck off. And we'll see. And if you're together a year from now, then you can meet his daughter. Hi, Dan. I coach a sport <laughs> as a public college, um, a little blue dot and a big red state. The reason I'm calling is one of my players uh, just confided in me that she is pregnant. It's an unwanted pregnancy. It's an unplanned pregnancy. And because we are a little blue dot and a big red state, there aren't any abortion clinics around. At this point, she's very, very early on in her pregnancy. 
Um, but the closest abortion clinic, um, even someplace that she could get the oral abortion pill, is about a three-and-a-half to four-hour drive from here. And more of what I'm calling about is she asked if I could take her because she doesn't really, she doesn't have a car on campus and she doesn't have anyone who can make that drive with her. Again, I teach and coach at a public school, so I don't really know that there would be any issues with the school, um, but I'm interested in what you think about some of the ethics, I guess, or potential problems that I'm not thinking of right now. The problem here is that the only abortion clinic or the nearest abortion clinic is 3.5 hours or four hours away. The problem here are all of the restrictions that have been laid upon a woman's right to choose to control her own reproductive system and decide whether or not, if she's experiencing an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, she wishes to remain pregnant or whether she's going to be forced to carry a pregnancy to term against her will. That is the problem here. There could also be a problem when you arrive at the clinic. Many abortion clinics have state-mandated waiting periods where you have to go in for an appointment and then wait a day or two before you can have your abortion, even if that abortion is in pill form and it's very early in the pregnancy. And this problem is going to get worse because of Brett Kavanaugh, because of Neil Gorsuch, because of Donald Trump. Don't just pray, ladies and gentlemen, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health. Also pray for Stephen Breyer's health and Sonia Sotomayor's health and Elena Kagan's health. And this problem is going to get worse because Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned. That is what Donald Trump promised to deliver to the evangelical right. And this problem is this problem because so many lefties refused to take the Supreme Court as an answer when they asked, why should I vote for Hillary Clinton? Once Roe v. Wade is overturned, and do not doubt Susan fucking Collins that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned by this radical right Supreme Court that you are fucking complicit, Susan Collins, in helping to construct. And then it's back to the states. Roe v. Wade isn't a constitutional amendment banning abortion in all 50 states. It returns to the states abortion rights, and there will be great swaths of the country where a woman cannot ultimately control her own reproductive system and make choices and decisions for herself. So, caller, I haven't really addressed your question. The ethics, I don't see an ethical problem here in you driving this adult person that you happen to know to get an abortion. You might want to look into whether that would be a problem at your university if her right-wing red state family finds out that someone who works at the university and works with her and has authority over her drove her to an abortion clinic four hours away. You'd want to make sure that that wasn't creating headaches for yourself. If it does potentially create a headache for you, reach out to some friends. Find someone in your social circle. Find someone on your blue dot, your blue island in that red state, who can step up and drive your student, this adult, to the clinic where she can execute her constitutional right to terminate this pregnancy. And hey, gang, y'all might want to brace yourselves because once Roe v. Wade is overturned, there are going to be women out there who need to be picked up and driven across several states to avail themselves of their right to control their own reproductive systems. It's going to get ugly and we're all going to have to step the fuck up, caller, just like I think that you should step the fuck up for your student. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm Joe. I'm from a 
fairly conservative area, and I have a parenting, sports, and sex-adjacent question for you. Um, my daughter, nine years old, plays football. She's in her second year and greatly enjoys it. She recently asked me if she wants to compete for the starting position at center, which requires, a, at least of the team she plays on, requires a boy, in this case, to stick their hands directly into the working space, as it were, of the center to receive the snap of the football. Um, routinely, the boys are taught how far to get their hands up to essentially feel with their hands for the junk of the boy who they're reaching underneath. I'm really struggling here as I don't want, as I've spent nine years teaching my daughter that just because she has a vagina, she can still do whatever the fuck she wants and not to let anything get in her way. But at this point, in this age, I'm not sure that she can consent or even that the, the nine-year-old boys, 10-year-old boys on her team would be able to consent to that level of physical intimacy, or not intimacy, but that level of contact without, uh, I just think they're a little too young for that. And I'm trying to deal with this as a parent. How do I tell my daughter, I'm sorry, well, you have a vagina. And in this case, this one very special case, you are not going to be able to achieve your goal. And I don't really like how that sits, but I also don't know how to deal with it on the other side of things. Your daughter's on a football team. I'm not a sportsy guy myself, and I certainly wasn't a sportsy nine-year-old. I was too busy dancing around the dining room to Camelot at nine years old to concern myself with anything as pedestrian as football. That was for my brothers. But I do believe there's a lot of incidental physical contact when you're on a football team, not even a tackle football team, even a tag football team. There are huddles and puddles and piles of kids running around. And and I don't see why this incidental potential physical contact is of a degree or a scale different really than the incidental and potential physical contact that your daughter is already coming into contact with with the other people on her team. Then your daughter is already running the risk of experiencing while on this football team with all these boys. It seems to me like you're projecting onto these nine-year-olds what it would feel like for adults to be in this situation. And I feel like you're the one sexualizing this and you need to back the fuck off. If you're going to have words with anybody, have words with the captain of the football team or the coaches of the football team about your concerns that your daughter's body and physical autonomy are respected. And if there are any boys on the team who take advantage of your daughter in this position – that they're the ones to be penalized. They're the ones to be pulled off the team or moved to another position. That your daughter shouldn't be the one who's punished. That her horizons shouldn't be narrowed and make it clear that it's not your daughter who should be punished or not allowed to do something because some boys are assholes. They should be the ones kicked off the team. They should be the ones put on the bench, not your daughter. And it would suck for your daughter to have her father be the one who benched her. So, dad. Knock it the fuck off. Hey, Dan. I'm calling with a question from the liberal West Coast. I have a son who is seven years old. His dad and I have been separated for about five years. Um, I recently noticed that he had an infection in, on his penis. He is not circumcised. And there was pus and stuff coming out of his little penis. And so I took him to the doctor. And the doctor had one look at it and said, Oh, wow, the opening is really small. Um, his foreskin will not retract. 
and he is also unable to pee without it spraying everywhere. Uh, she referred me to a urologist who prescribed steroid treatment that we used for about six weeks to try to help open the hole. Uh, had no effect, and there has been literally no change. And so when we went back to the urologist for the follow-up appointment, he said that we should schedule uh, to have him circumcised. I am fine with this. I would make the surgery appointment tomorrow, but my ex, my kid's dad, who is also not circumcised, would like us to explore other avenues. One of them being just waiting until he's a teenager and can make the decision for himself. Uh, you know, I think, <laughs> I'm not sure this is the right answer for us, but uh, he is his father and I am weighing in, you know, I'm taking into consideration or I have to, his opinion, his feelings. I'm wondering if there's any specialist that you can bring to answer this question. Is this a problem that's going to fix itself? Uh, the urologist does not think so. My kid's doctor, pediatrician, does not think so. They think the immediate answer is to have him circumcised. My ex is worried about him losing sexual feelings, decreased sexual satisfaction, decreased sexual feelings. Um, I am worried about him getting more infections and having to keep treating him with the antibiotic and antibacterial and having this really just be a problem for him. He's only seven, and it's a long ways before he can make his own decision. So I'm wondering, is this something that will get better with time? Are there alternative treatments? My ex also thinks masturbating will help this condition. I don't know. I can't really get a straight answer. I know that doctors aren't always right. I do trust doctors. My kids are fully vaccinated. We believe in medical science. I just need a little bit more of an opinion to, or, you know, some, a medical opinion to help me make this decision. Thank you, Dan. Joining us by phone, Dr. Stephen King, our go-to urologist here in Seattle. Hey, Dr. King, how are you? Very good, Dan. How are you doing? Uh, I, I'm doing well. I'm doing better than this poor seven-year-old penis seems to be doing. Uh, so, circumcision or nothing? Are those the only options here? Well, there's, there's many options available in this uh, situation, but... Um, Based on the caller's description, uh, it sounds like this seven-year-old has likely a, a phimosis, um, which is a scarring of the foreskin. And uh, without directly examining it, just going on the history that the uh, mother has provided that both the primary physician as well as a urologist are recommending a circumcision, my guess is there is probably significant scarring. And with the uh, scarring of the foreskin, uh, options do become a little bit more limited. Typically, we will try a round of steroid creams on these. In some circumstances, you can actually inject the scar, which is a little bit more aggressive, especially in a seven-year-old. But if steroids are not going to help the scar of the phimosis sort of loosen up uh, on its own, then you're looking at surgical interventions. Um, circumcision is by far the most successful long-term single procedure that's going to fix the problem. There are some less invasive options uh, where you don't actually remove the foreskin, but rather do some sort of plastic surgery tricks It's called propucioplasty, or in some cases you can do something called a dorsal slit, which is a, a minor surgical procedure that, 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 like I said, preserves the foreskin, but opens it up. But these have a much higher rate of requiring revision 
cosmetically they don't work quite as well as a circumcision. But it but but wait, can I jump in there? I mean, the the dorsal slit cosmetically uh, may not be as as pretty as the circumcision, but it does preserve all of the nerve endings that are in the foreskin. It does. It does. it preserves the tissue. It, it certainly would, by most people's uh, aesthetic. Uh, judgments look a little bit strange because you you have some sort of almost what we call dog ears of tissue that that will uh, present some bumps that will look different. But um, you can preserve the tissue. But the issue is even with the dorsal slit, you're not removing the diseased, scarred tissue. So there is still a significant chance that it can re-scar even with a hmm. dorsal slit. Hmm. So uh, very often, 30 to 50 percent of these patients will end up needing further revision surgery, often a circumcision, which will uh, be more complicated because there's already been a previous procedure performed. I'm just trying to to find a middle ground that might work for both these parents where, you know, the dorsal slit now preserves the option of the kid later deciding to to get a circumcision if, you know, he doesn't like the dog ears or the, the problem persists. Uh, but sure. But can you run us through the risks of doing nothing? If he's regularly getting infections and there's pus coming out of his foreskin, is really doing nothing the father's plan to wait 11 years and let the kid make his mind up at 18? Is that a reasonable proposition? Uh, Frankly, I would say not really. Um, I mean, the the kid is this child has already proven to have you know two problems from his what we are we are presuming is a phimosis. And once again, without directly examining the degree of scarring, it's hard for me to say, mm-hmm. but the, the, he's already had infection with, with pus or purulence coming out. It sounds like he's spraying his urine all over the place. And, uh, and typically spraying of the urine is, it, it comes about when you have a substantial scar that's really retracted. And now the urine flowing out of the, the penis head, the meatus of the urine if it's bumping up against scars is when you get all that spraying mm-hmm. a, a, a sort of a soft compliant foreskin is, uh, that if the tissue is soft typically won't result in these urinary symptoms as well. So to me, that also tells me that we're getting a little bit more advanced in terms of the degree of uh, disease going on here. How does a seven year old scar his foreskin? How does that happen? What cause, what causes a phimosis in an adult or a child? You know, so sometimes it can become a little bit of a chicken and an egg situation. We know that, you know, infections or inflammation will cause a tissue reaction sort of scarring. So um, let's, let's start off with just normal physiology. So when, a, when, a, when, a, when an anatomically, what we call, you know, normal penis uh, emerges into the world, there is a natural, what we call physiologic phimosis. Mm-hmm. So in an uncircumcised newborn, Basically, all boys have a foreskin that is sort of stuck or attached to the uh, head of the penis. And then over time, over the next few years, uh, skin changes occur. Epithelialization is the medical term for where the uh, underlying skin becomes a little bit more dry and firm. The uh, foreskin naturally starts to pull away from the head of the penis. Um, Typically, this happens in about 90% of boys, I think by around age five. So most, most boys will have a retractable foreskin by that age. Still, there are some people who kind of hang on and their foreskin doesn't retract until a little bit later, maybe 10 years old at the most. But by then, almost everyone's foreskin should be soft and retractable. But what can happen is when the foreskin doesn't retract, uh, there's a lot of skin dead debris tissue sort of in, in that space. 
And as boys are not necessarily always hygienically uh, <laughs> optimal or optimized, <laughs> uh, you know, infection, uh, infection can set in in this space. Men too. Men, men, adult men are often not uh, hygienically optimal. Yeah. So, so certainly it's a setup. It's a potential for some kids to get infection. And when infection occurs, then body's reaction is to scar. So what happens is the tip, that tip of the foreskin will get firm and scarred down. And that is pretty much a permanent thing. Like I said, some steroids, steroids can help to soften those scars in some cases, but in many cases that scarring becomes permanent. Now you have a situation where you're trapping urine in that space between the foreskin and the head of the penis. Um, you're trapping smegma. This is all a setup for fur- further recurrent infections. The more infections you get, you can start getting real significant complications, you know, in the, in the head of the penis. You can get the, uh, the opening of the urine, the urethra can tighten down. Mm. And in extreme cases, although it's extremely rare, um, and when we see this in older men who have had recurrent infections in this area, you can, you can be at risk for penile cancer, okay. which is pretty much exclusively, it's, that's exclusively in patients who are uncircumcised. I mean, exceedingly rare in a circumcised patient. Now that's not a reason to get a circumcision, but let's talk about the dad yeah. for a second. Cause I think you know, she says that the father, her ex is uncircumcised himself and perhaps he derives a lot of pleasure from his foreskin, his uncut cock. And he doesn't want to deny his son you know, the advantages of, of being uncut, um, having all of those nerve endings, masturbation being easier. Sometimes circumcisions can be too tight and they can cause pain. Um, when people have erections and, and scarring of, it, of its own, you know, it's a risk. Um, any surgical procedure is a risk and maybe dad's projecting onto his sure. son, you know, or wanting his son to have the same pleasures and advantages that he's enjoyed from being uncut. Someone needs to get through to the dad about the risks here and even if it's just you know not penile cancer, it's just recurring painful infections yeah. all through his childhood. What kind of relationship is that yeah. kid going to have with his penis in adulthood yeah. if his penis has been this sort of locus of conflict between his parents and pain for him all of his life? Yes, many layers to unpack right there. Many layers to unpack. Um, absolutely, there's you know the decision to, to circumcise in our country, in the United States at least is very much driven by, you know, cultural expectations as well as the number one factor predicting who gets circumcised and who doesn't is whether or not the father was circumcised. That still predominates over who gets circumcised in this country. So yeah, there's that, there's that, I want him to look like me thing, which I don't understand because, you know, I have a dad and we have never hauled our dicks out to compare. You know, I was, you know, I have my dad's nose, whether I have my dad's dick or not, I have no idea and no desire to know. No, no, but to be honest, yeah, no, this father needs to realize that what's happening with his son is likely very different than what he may have experienced as a child. I mean, it sounds like probably this father did not have issues with infections and spraying of his urine. So this is a real true, you know, medical situation, a a complication of his uh, anatomy that does need to be addressed. And he's not going to outgrow it on his own, likely very unlikely this, this situation will just spontaneously resolve. Some form of intervention needs to happen because, as you're right, as he goes forward, this, the, the phimosis and the complications just become worse and worse over time. The more infections he gets, the more complicated a circumcision would become because more and more tissue is now scarred and damaged 
a seven-year-old boy having a circumcision is going to get through the procedure and have less you know, long-term memory of it and any associations or psychological trauma associated with their penis later on in life when they begin to use their penis for what normal boys do as teenagers and adults. Um, whereas a, a uh, someone in more advanced age getting a circumcision is going to notice the changes a lot more. And as well, there is not really any substantial medical literature showing a change in pleasure um, from a circumcised penis and an uncircumcised penis when the circumcision is done as a child. Um, there may be some more prolonged uh, time towards ejaculation because the sensor the the sensory stimulation is not uh, uh, excessive, but um, from a actual pleasure standpoint, no data has shown any difference there. Now, when adults get circumcised, there can be some changes. Adults get circumcised for cosmetic reasons or thinking that their pleasure is going to change in a positive way. There can be some decreased sensations, but that's typically in adults who get circumcised, okay, not in children. One last question. Have you ever faced this circumstance? There's a kid, needs a circumcision, one parent says yes, one parent says no. How does a case like that resolve? Court? That's a wonderful, that's a good question because actually in my practice that has not come up. Now, I do not specialize in pediatric urology, but we do certainly do childhood circumcisions. I, I imagine this has to, uh, you know, if there was a conflict, we would certainly want to come up with some resolution that would be okay between the parents. If we felt as a surgeon there was medical necessity that this is important and that the child would be caused harm, I, I imagine we would uh, try to establish some firm legal grounds to go ahead and do this. Uh, but uh, once again, I'm not sure what the, 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 the court system, who which parent gets the uh, absolute right for medical decision-making in this case, uh, that, that personally has not come up in my practice. Dr. Stephen King, our go-to urologist here in Seattle, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 44-year-old male, and me and my girlfriend have recently gotten into rimming, and she, we both really, really like it, and when I, you know, lick her ass, it makes her come really, really, really hard. So it's been really fun to do. I want to know, I know that there's obviously a risk of, you know, in some kind of infections if you go ass to pussy, because I like to eat, eat her pussy right after. Um, and obviously, um, I guess my questions are, um, what's the protocol for this? Like, do I keep a bottle of mouthwash next to my bed and chug it between, you know, those uh, moments or because that feels very like non-sexy and it would kind of kill the mood. I mean, and if I start with her pussy and go to her ass, is it going to have the same kind of deleterious effect? Um, and uh, the other question, I mean, we always shower before we do this, you know, so we're clean and, you know, we've we have no history of uh, uh, STIs. Um, the, the other question is, like, if she licks my ass and and she, after that she likes to suck my dick, is that problematic in the same way? And the I guess I looked it up online, of course, and everything is extremely dire, like you're going to die for from doing this. And I understand the risks, but like, for, what's practical advice about this? Like, 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 how do people 
for real navigate this in the real world because this is the first person I've ever done any kind of rimming with and I and I love it and she loves it and we want to do it and we don't want it to be like weird or make each other sick. You don't want to go back to front. You don't want to eat her ass and then eat her pussy without washing your face and yeah, maybe having a swig, a mouthwash just to be on the safe side. And this may be a low probability, high consequence sort of thing. You want the house insurance, not because your house is going to burn down, but because the consequences of your house burning down are so severe. Well, the risk for her, the potential consequence of a urinary tract infection, if you go from back to front, aren't 100%. But a urinary tract infection is a huge fucking painful nightmare. And you want to minimize even what could be a minimal risk considering your hygiene practices prior to getting into rimming. So if I were you and I were eating the ass of my female partner, I wouldn't go ass to twat. I would go twat to ass at all times. As for you and your dick, as for her eating your ass and then sucking your dick, you're at much lower risk of a urinary tract infection because your urethra is a lot longer than hers. The distance from a woman's opening to her urethra and her bladder is very short. The man's distance is longer because you've got that penis and your urethra is that much longer and it takes that much more effort for nasty bugs to climb all the way up your urethra and into your bladder and to give you a urinary tract infection. That's why men rarely get them. Fun fact, little digression. Have you heard of nullos? These are men who willingly have their penises removed. They nullify, have their penises and balls removed. And one of the things these men face post-nullification when they become nullies is higher incidence of urinary tract infections because suddenly their urethras are as short. The distance from the outside opening and their bladder are as short as with most cisgendered women. Anyway, just thought I'd share. And yeah, there's a lot of scaremongering out there about rimming. There are real health risks. Bacterial infections, giardia, you can get the usual six-pack of sexually transmitted infections, eating ass. And a lot of what you read out there about rimming is really infused with butt phobia and scat phobia. And you have to take it with a grain of salt or a kernel of corn, whichever you prefer. But obviously, if eating ass inevitably led to death, I wouldn't be sitting here hosting this podcast now, would I? Hey, Dan, I'm a 22-year-old queer person from upstate South Carolina, and I'm in a bit of a situation. Uh, my boyfriend and I have been together about a year and are currently living together. I love him like I've never loved anyone before. He has a female best friend he's known for about 10 years, and their entire friendship has been online, so they've never met. He's been completely transparent about his relationship with her and has even offered to let me go through his messages. They're very close and sexed and exchange nudes fairly frequently. He's openly expressed he loves her and calls her baby, just like he calls me. He tells me a lot about her and how he really, really hopes she and I will hit it off and she can be best friends with benefits for both of us and or maybe even be in a polyamorous relationship. The thing is, I don't know how I feel about it. I haven't had much opportunity to talk to her, although she and I have briefly chatted and exchanged nudes. She doesn't reply to my messages often. I try not to feel jealous, but sometimes it just hits me really hard and I get depressed for a couple of days. My boyfriend has been more than loving and understanding with me and has told me in the past I can just say the word and he'll cut off contact with any other sexual partner. I have no reason to believe he'd leave me for her, but I'm still afraid. We're planning to go and live with her in Chicago next year, and I'm terrified. What should I do? Can I train myself to be poly? 
I've had my heart broken before in my last poly relationship. There were a lot of lies and sneaking around. None of that has happened yet, but I'm still very scared. I don't want to force my boyfriend to end his close friendship, and I don't want to leave him. How can I change myself? How do I stop these irrational feelings of jealousy? Let me get this out of the way right at the top. I had my heart broken in my last poly relationship. You often hear that from people who had their hearts broken in their last poly relationship, and they roll it out as the reason why they are never wanting to enter into a poly relationship ever again. You rarely hear, if ever hear, I had my heart broken in my last monogamous relationship. That's why I'm never going to be monogamous ever again. The problem isn't invariably the relationship model. The problem was the people in the relationship. If your last poly relationship was a disaster, it's not because of the poly thing. There are lots of successful poly relationships out there. It was the particular people in that particular poly relationship that shat the bed. It is not an indictment of the relationship model. When a relationship, however many people are involved in it, comes to crap. If it did, if we applied this standard, the same standard that so many people who've done polyamory or haven't done polyamory want to apply to polyamory, which is point to one failed poly relationship and that's proof that no one should try this poly thing. It's always everywhere a disaster because of this one. If we applied that to monogamy, no one would be in a monogamous relationship either. And then where would we be a nation of people just hooking up every once in a while with people that we don't? exchange our phone numbers with. All right, this is fucking crazy. 10 years they've been sexting. 10 years he's been in this quote-unquote relationship with this woman and they have never met and you, the new girlfriend of one year and this guy are planning to move to Chicago to live with this person that you've literally never met? That's nuts. What if you don't like the way she smells or tastes? What if she has a pentagram on her floor and dead chickens scattered all over the apartment. What if she's fucking crazy? What if you walk into her apartment and there's a MAGA hat on a shelf and you find out that she voted for Donald J. fucking Trump? You don't know people you haven't met. I'm sorry. I get it. You can get to know somebody really well online. You can swap a million text messages. You can send videos back and forth. You can jump on Skype. You can really connect. And of course, there are relationships out there that grew out of those kinds of internet enabled connections that that would have been impossible 20 years ago. But you got to verify those feelings. And the only way to verify feelings that are generated through text messages and sext messages and Skype sessions is to actually be in that person's presence, to be in the same room with that person. I think after 10 years, your boyfriend can have a pretty good hunch about how he feels about this woman. And she might have a very good hunch about how she feels about him. But you really are gambling the farm there if you two are moving to a new state and to a city you've never been to to live with this woman, to set up a polyamorous triad. That's jumping headfirst into a pool without first making sure it's full of fucking water and it's deep enough that you're not going to break both your fucking necks. So I think my issue with this plan is kind of of a piece with your issue with your boyfriend hustling you into a poly relationship with this woman. What is the rush? He has got to slow his role. If you are not just important to him, but the most important person to him, if you are currently his primary partner, which presumably is what he means when he says that he will cut off contact with any other person at your demand, you have primacy. He prioritizes you over all others. Why is he again, rushing you into this relationship, into a polyamorous triad and forcing you to make a premature commitment. Who forces people to make premature commitments? Abusers. 
Does everyone who's asked someone to make a premature commitment turn out to be an abuser in the end? No, but almost all abusers have forced people into making premature commitments. I'm not suggesting that you're with an abuser. I'm just saying that this is evidence of bad judgment and he's rushing you and he needs to slow the fuck down and you need to be honest about how uncomfortable you are with not just him building a life plan around this 10-year relationship that has only been virtual, but him insisting that after 12 months together, you should also construct your future plans around whoever the fuck this woman is that you've never met, that you've swapped a few messages with, who doesn't respond promptly to your messages unlike his. And your boyfriend of one year is asking you to pull up your roots and move to Chicago and not just date this woman or see this woman or hang out with this woman, but enter into a polyamorous committed triad with this woman. That's nuts. That's nuts. And I say that as somebody who's generally pro poly and pro take a risk. So what are you going to do? You're going to tell your boyfriend that you're happy to move to Chicago. If Chicago is a place that you want to move to, but initially you're not entering into a polyamorous relationship with this woman. Maybe the two of you together, if you are the couple, you can date this woman, but you're going to have your apartment. She's going to have her apartment. You're not going to spend every waking minute with her. And you expect if he wants you to come with him for your relationship, yours and his to be prioritized. And you are open to exploring possibilities with this woman, but you are not going to make any commitments. And if he balks at that, tell him to enjoy Chicago and you'll stay where you are. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old woman that lives in the Pacific Northwest, and I just got a quick question for you. Can you tell me what the difference between ethical non-monogamy and polyamory is? Polyamory is one iteration of ethical non-monogamy. You can be ethically non-monogamous and you and your partner have the occasional three-way. You can be ethically non-monogamous and you and your partner have a rule about any outside sexual contact has to be a one-off, no dating, not even names. You don't even want your partner to know their names. You want your partner to go to a sex club and if they do so – They're allowed to have sex with other people. It's an ethically non-monogamous arrangement and agreement. Polyamory, of course, is concurrent, multiple romantic partners and possible concurrent, multiple romantic commitments. That is one way people practice ethical non-monogamy, polyamory, but it is not the only way to be ethically non-monogamous or practice ethical non-monogamy. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old gay man living in the Midwest. I've been dating this guy from my kickball team for four months, and it started out as an organic friendship and has been pretty smooth. We lack many common interests, and our main source of contention is his gambling. He has been gambling for 15 years, plays up to 15 hours weekly, and I've had a visceral negative response akin to panic to it since I found out about it. A number of my friends have labeled it as addictive gambling. I work in the mental health care field, and I'm unsure I would go that far, but it is significant. Should I stay or should I go now? Should you stay? Should you go? Depends really on what you want. If what you want in the future is marriage and commitment and merged finances, merging your finances with someone who has a gambling addiction would give me pause. When you marry someone, you become responsible, legally responsible for their debts. Do you want to risk being legally responsible for the debts of somebody who has a gambling problem, if not an addiction at the moment? Maybe it's not a problem right now, could become a problem in the future, but you know there are people out there who married people who weren't gambling, who then took gambling up and became gambling addicts. I'm reluctant to tell you what to do without knowing more about 
this relationship and without knowing more about how your boyfriend or this guy that you're dating from your kickball team handles this. There are people out there who gamble online and, and keep it in check, but 15 hours a week sounds like a lot and you work in a mental health field and perhaps you see a lot of worst case scenarios, perhaps your sample as my samples almost entirely are, your sample is skewed because the people who come through your facility who have gambling problems are the people who have gambling problems. The people who gamble a little for recreation and don't have a problem with it aren't going to wind up seeking mental health care or in your facility or flashing on your radar. So in the way that people say check your privilege, sometimes you need to check your samples to make sure that your samples are representative. Mine aren't. People call me when they have a problem. People don't call me when everything's going great. And that can skew my perspective on certain relationship dynamics, certain asks, certain sexual issues because they all seem problematic to me because I only hear from the people with the problems about them. See what I mean? And you may be in the same place. Make an independent assessment of how large this looms and whether it's ever been a problem and ask him how he contains this so that he doesn't become a gambling addict. We all know people who drink who aren't drunks. We all know people who use drugs and don't abuse drugs. There are people out there who gamble but don't have a gambling addiction. You can't become a drunk if you aren't drinking. You can't become a drug addict if you aren't using. You can't become a gambling addict and have a huge problem if you aren't gambling a little bit to begin with. Does he have an addictive personality? What are his firewalls like? I'm sure if he gambles as much as he does that he's seen other people spin out of control. What were the lessons that he learned watching others develop a problem and how will he know when to pull the ripcord if he is drifting toward that kind of problematic place? But in your shoes, the questions, again, I would be asking myself are the questions I asked you at the beginning of my response. What do you want in your future? What are you willing to tolerate? How much risk are you willing to tolerate? And if you marry this guy and he develops a problem – how much debt are you willing to take responsibility for? Hey, Dan, this is for the woman in episode 626 that was having trouble getting her now ex-boyfriend to do anything or go on, uh, ask her on any dates. I was just recently the boyfriend on the receiving end of that conversation. My girlfriend sat me down. She told me, you need to do more. Uh, you need to do things. And because I deserve it. That was a big uh, perspective changer for me. And I have ADD myself. And after she said that, I started doing more and I was able to do more. So her ex's excuses that uh, it's his ADHD is personally uh, offensive to me as somebody with uh, ADD who's received the exact same talk. I hope this helps. Hey, Dan. This is a call and response to the sexy Texan in 626. Um, I married my partner who does not like to kiss. Uh, he told me early on, and your advice is great about telling the Texan to be honest. Um, I would do that. And then also make sure you tell your partners how you show affection uh, so she knows how or he knows how to look out for it. Uh, and finally, bring some things into the bedroom that are fun for her. My husband doesn't like to kiss, but he loves to use my vibrator on me. He loves to put things inside of me. And even though I do, you know, want to kiss every now and then and he does indulge me, he finds ways to please and pleasure me otherwise. So good luck 
we exist, we will marry you, we will date you. So be honest, be out there, and be comfortable to let things loose. Hey, this is to the woman in episode 626 who was surprised by semi-hard cocks. That's not uncommon with new partners when a guy doesn't know like what you're into and is learning to read you. And with a new partner, if you're anxious and disappointed that his cock's not hard, it's going to show up in your body language and that's going to kill his boner. So I would ditch that expectation the first few times, find some other stuff to be excited about, give him good feedback, moan and writhe and grab him and tell him you love his arms and his chest and his cock. And the more into it you are, the more he'll relax and the harder his cock will get. And finally, as Dan said, positions matter. So ask him for his favorite and go there. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. It's finally here. The 14th annual Hump Film Festival opens this week in Seattle and Olympia, coming soon to Portland and San Francisco with an all-new selection of dirty short films that audiences will get to vote on for cash prizes. Next week, again, we'll be in Portland and San Francisco. There are still some tickets left, so go to humpfilmfest.com and learn about showtimes, all the new films, and how to get your tickets. And also learn how to submit your film to the 15th Annual Hump, which is coming up next November. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy in the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading and vote!